Good morning, Colossae East. And to those from beyond our community here in Portland, uh, Oregon, welcome. I hope that you uh, feel welcome. Uh, my name is Ben. We are in the, I don't know how long we've been doing this now. Um, this is odd. I remember when the, when the pandemic began, thinking to myself, boy, this might actually go all the way out till Palm Sunday. This might not be done until Easter. At least we'll be able to reconvene uh, for Easter. And now as Easter approaches, <laughs> I don't know what to think. I suspect that your emotions have been fluctuating on the daily. So I hope that this time together in the Word of God can breathe some new life into our heart and soul. These texts we have, um, you know, that we're following today, following the Revised Common Lectionary, and uh, the four that we'll look at, I think, well, they've been refreshing to me. So I'd like to walk through them with each of you. I wish that we could be together. Uh, I'm glad we at least have this. So I'm going to pray. And then if you would pray the collect with me. Uh, for those of you on our church email list, this will be on the top of that page that I emailed to you. And for those who aren't, just find the Revised Common Lectionary. Look up today's date, uh, April 5th. And we will go from there. So, the you know, I, I don't know if this is happening for you uh, as well. And, and I suspect it does momentarily. We have moments of lots of sort of chaos and busyness, but then these moments of new reflections. I just haven't thought about that before related to the world or myself or something like that. Um, but the, I've, I've long reflected on things like salvation, what it means to be saved, rescued, etc. And uh, this Lenten season focuses so much on our mortality. And here we're in the Lenten season in the middle of a pandemic. It, the irony is unbelievable. And as I look at my mortality and I think about the brokenness and the tears all around me, uh, these texts that we'll look at today, I think they weigh heavily in a really positive way. So I hope the same is true for you. One note, too, before I begin. Uh, as we go, if you have questions that come up, and I suspect you do, please don't hesitate to send them to me. Uh, my email is ben at colossechurch.org, simple. And I'd love to dialogue back and forth. I do that often. I enjoy those conversations, and it often gives... Um, some of us need more time to process. I'm one of those kind of people. So it's, sometimes it's nice to write back and forth. I'd be happy to do that with you. Okay, take a breath. Let's try to focus our, our heart and mind, uh, at least for a moment, and engage with these uh, ancient texts. We'll go to a prophetic utterance from Isaiah, to a poem out of the Psalms, to a letter from the mid-first century, uh, and then a gospel writing from even earlier. And as we read these, we know that God is speaking to us through them. So try your best to still your mind and your heart and your soul. Take a deep breath. Pray with me. Father, we are in all kinds of different places as we come together with you today. Uh, from fearful to hopeful, uh, from trusting to feeling very shaky, from anxious to confident, happy to sad, and anything in between. We're a, we're a jumbled up mess. And I think when I say we're, I mean an entire planet. It feels that way anyway. 
Have mercy on us, please. I know that you are, but have mercy on all of us. Please bless the workers who are on the front lines of medical care for all of the many hundreds of thousands of people that are being sickened, uh, tens of thousands so far that are dying. Uh, please, please strengthen them and help them. And please help every single one of us and all of our neighbors learn more about what life truly is. We need your help. Please have mercy on us. Amen. Please go to the collect with me. This we'll pray together. Almighty and ever-living God, in your tender love for the human race that you sent your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, to take upon him our nature and to suffer death upon the cross, giving us the example of his great humility. Mercifully grant that we may walk in the way of his suffering and also share in his resurrection through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. The title of this sermon is An Unexpected and Strong Rescue. Begin with me in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 through 9a, first part of verse 9. Here are the words of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 50, verse 4. The Sovereign Lord has given me his words of wisdom so that I know how to comfort the weary. The Sovereign Lord has spoken to me, and I have listened. I have not rebelled or turned away. I offered my back to those who beat me, and my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mockery and spitting. Because the Sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a stone, determined to do his will. And I know that I will not be put to shame. He who gives me justice is near. Who will dare to bring charges against me now? Where are my accusers? Let them appear. See, the sovereign Lord is on my side. Who will declare me guilty? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <laughs> Isaiah, what an interesting thing that he has to say here. I want to share with you these words of wisdom. The God, the sovereign, powerful Lord, uh, has given me words of wisdom for a purpose. Here's why he gave them to me, so that I would know how to comfort the weary. <coughs> Excuse me. The weary, uh, is that a word you can relate to? <laughs> I can't. And I think that as I read it, I missed the next line, which is probably the most crucial. Morning by morning, he wakens me and opens my understanding to his will. So verse 4 tells us that a powerful and sovereign God gives Isaiah the prophet, sees himself as somebody who's been given words of wisdom for a reason. That reason is to comfort weary people and this knowledge that he has about his understanding seems to be morning by morning he wakens me 
and opens my understanding to his will, morning by morning, day by day. This is an idiomatic way to talk about a life devoted to God, a life lived with God. Then you'll be able to understand his will. So if you just pause and skip all the way ahead to Jesus, we hear him say words. Uh, many of us have heard the phrase, you know, the truth will set you free. Well, it is kind of true. It's pulled out of context, and it's Jesus saying, if you abide in me, then I will abide in you, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That helps to avoid a sort of self-imposed truth. <laughs> you know, we've all lived in a world of people who have self-imposed truths that gets a little bit rough. Well, here's the idea of Jesus will tell you the truth if you live with him uh, and and you learn it. It takes time to learn. It's not a sentence of truth. It's not a proclamation you agree with. It's a way of life. And you see this, this same exact thing all the way back in the prophet Isaiah. And he's saying, morning by morning, I wake up with God. He opens my understanding to his will. All right, great. He's spoken to me. I've listened. I haven't turned away from him, he says in verse 5. And then look at the result of all this listening to God and living with God day by day, morning by morning. Uh, we end up in a certain way of living in this world, Isaiah is showing us. And this is the way that it is. He gives his back to people who beat him and his cheeks to people who pull out his beard. <laughs> No, that's a funny way. I don't have a lot of people trying to pull up my beard. But if you kind of get into his world, these are, these are uh, symbols of shame. People beating me, pulling out my beard, uh, facial hair, you're, you're, you're shaming me deeply and harming me deeply. And the thing that I'm going to do, whatever it is I do, is I'm, I'm not going to retaliate. And I think that's the idea of turning my back to them. I'm not going to put my aggressive, defensive part forward. I'm going to put the defenseless part forward, which is my back. I can't even see what you're going to do to me. Why would you do that? It seems so weird. I did not hide my face from mockery and spitting. Notice, this life lived with God causes Isaiah to come to a place where he's not trying to control the impressions that people have about him. I did not hide my face. I am who I am. I'm not trying to control that. I'm not retaliating against those who harm him physically. I offered my back, my cheeks. We just talked about that. So you see this sort of way of life he adapts, which is a gentle defiance, if you will. That's important here. He's not saying, I just turned into a groveling baby who said, hey, go ahead and beat me up, wah, wah, wah. It's not that. This is a way of standing your ground and saying, kind of do your worst. And there's, the only way you can do that is if you trust in something greater than what's happening in the moment. And there's his verse 7, the sovereign Lord he trusts in will help me. I won't be disgraced. You think there's a little parenthesis there, like in the end, ultimately, I won't be. And, here, and so I have set my face like a stone. I'm confident. I'm not wavering from this. I'm determined to do what? Fight those bad guys? Make them pay? No, to do his will. Not my will, but yours be done says this prophet. And I know that I will not be put to shame. Even as he's being put to shame, he says, I know I won't be. Aha, that's an aha moment if you're paying attention. He's focused on God's will. He sees the life and the power in it. He trusts God, even while everything around him seems to be oppressive and unjust and painful. It's God 
who gives justice. And then he has this close, you know, sort of rhetorical questions. What are you going to bring against me? Do your worst. What are you going to accuse me of? I, you know, <laughs> say the worst thing. God knows it, but he forgives. He's merciful. What are you going to do? Who's going to say I'm guilty when God says I'm forgiven? Huh? 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 <laughs> I love the prophets. Isaiah was great. Well, notice we, we could make a mistake here and turn this into some sort of political equation or conversation about politics. It's not that. Isaiah is talking about the way he himself rules in this world, the way he lives. These are words from a well-traveled and wise prophet who's seen a lot of life, and he's seen what happens when, there's a, when we cling to a need to always win. You've seen it. You've done it. I have. I probably did it today at some point. <laughs> I want that cereal. No. He does not fight with people to win. And he has seen what happens to relationships, I think, when people cling to a need for respect and a need to be fully understood. Notice he doesn't demand to be respected or to have his privileges as a prophet honored. He, I mean, he's a prophet. And Isaiah, you know, it's not easy for him. But he accepts being misunderstood. I do not hide my face from mockery and spitting. Yeah? And, and, I, and why? Well, because this is about God. The sovereign Lord is helping me. He's dealing with that kind of brokenness. Life is not about me fighting with other people to win or to be known correctly. It's about a humble way of love, of gift, of trust. So I think if you could sum up Isaiah in this moment here, we might say that he's saying something uh, confident. With God, I've got this. Uh, we've got this. It's, it's possible. There's some way forward. All right. Now here's a response to this idea from the poet uh, in Psalm 31. It's, 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 Psalm 31 is not written for this Isaiah prophecy, but it's another side of the same coin, and it's one that I think... I relate to, at least in this moment, a little bit more, though I'm, I'm tracking with Isaiah. Here we go. Psalm 31, verses 9 through 16. Feel the grief here and feel not the despair, but just a desperation. Those are different. Psalm 31, verse 9. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am in distress. Tears blur my eyes. My body and my soul are withering away. I am dying from grief. My years are shortened by sadness. Sin has drained my strength, and I am wasting away from within. I am scorned by all my enemies, despised by my neighbors. Even my friends are afraid to come near me. When they see me on the street, they run the other way. I am ignored as if I was dead, as if I was a broken pot. I've heard many rumors about me. I'm surrounded by terror. My enemies conspire against me, plotting to take my life. But I am trusting you, O Lord, saying you are my God. My future is in your hands. Rescue me from those who hunt me down relentlessly. Let your favor shine on your servant. In your unfailing love, rescue me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can feel that desperation. You are my only hope, God. 
The ways of this world are proving to be really, really awful. I can't see a way out, I think the, po the poet is saying here. With God, please, maybe, you're the only hope I have. Rescue me. You can feel not a sense of, hey, God, uh, I've got a serious issue here. We've got a complex problem with this evil guy. I need you to come in and do something for me so that we can get this wrapped up and then keep moving forward. We're doing good otherwise, you know. I've got it pretty much put together. I just need some of your power. <laughs> That's not his tone here, is it? No, his tone is, I'm desperate. Like, everything I figured life was going to be like has not turned out to, to be that way. And, and and what I had hoped for has not come to pass. All I have left is you are my God. Please rescue me. I need you. Uh, this is the, the prayer. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. We just sense that need, a desperation. So these two... Poems, if you will. Oh, the first one's not a poem, I guess. But these two scriptures, these two pieces of scripture, set something up for us. They're helping us to see this humility. One is a confident humility. With you, we've got this. Another is a desperate humility. I am done thinking I know what to do. I just need you. Please. And, and so that moves now. I'd like to move our thinking to this sense of coming to a humble place, recognizing that we need help. And if we're here listening to, you know, a Christian sermon or part of a Christian church, there's this, there's this at least a base level seeking of God. And we would, we would say, what, who, what kind of God are we going to cry out to for help? You know, if you're facing real danger, you have a crew of friends or your family, you're genuinely threatened, you, you know, you're like the psalmist just described, or you you just, you need God, you need somebody to help you. Um, it might not be too hard to actually imagine this right now in the middle of a global pandemic, you know, the sense of needing help. Well, what kind of being do you want to have come and help you? Uh, you know, the weight of this world, all of its pressures, demands, they're wearing our bodies down. They're cutting your heart up. You're bleeding from our souls. Do we cry out for something powerful or do we cry out for something weak? You know, power. I don't want weak sauce right now. I mean, powerful. But, but then we have to wait for a second and say, what is power? What will save me? from this harm and death that keeps infiltrating everything. Well, Isaiah said, God, because the sovereign Lord helps me. Uh, this is who we need, a sovereign over evil, not a slave to evil. We need a Thor. We need a Wonder Woman, a Skywalker, an Optimus Prime, you know, power, somebody who doesn't take any guff from anybody, gets the job done, you know. And, and I think Isaiah saw that in God. Therefore, I have set my face like a stone, determined to do his will, says Isaiah. Because of my desperate need and because of God's clear and present power, I am banking on this sovereign king as my only hope. Boom! <laughs> you know, uh, God's got me. You hear that tone in him. But consider something for just a second with me, if you would. 
indulge me. <laughs> How do you respond to the following two words? I'm going to say two words. And first, I just want you to ask yourself if you have the same response or if you respond differently to them at all. Okay? Here's the two words. God. All right. Second word. Jesus. Sometimes I think we have different emotional responses to the word God and the word Jesus. God, it's, it, it, it invokes a different sort of sense than Jesus. Why? Well, I'm not sure that we're all that different from the first century kinds of people that the Apostle Paul was teaching and leading. We are for sure <laughs> very different, but we, we also prefer the idea of a sovereign God who doesn't take any disrespect from anybody, who will not be put to shame, who will never be disgraced, who destroys evil with power, puts an end to it, doggone it. You know, Paul says, yes, I think God is like that, and that is legit, but he's also nothing like that. But he is, it's just not how you're thinking. All right. <laughs> Isn't that great? So here's how Paul puts it. I want to go to this next text, our epistle, our letter. This is a big, big text about uh, God and about Jesus. Um, in fact, Philippians 2, I have heard a pastor describe uh, as if you were, if the New Testament was a mountain range and you were, you know, looking at it, to Philippians 2 would be uh, one of the three highest peaks. <laughs> it's just so critical, and it's such an early text. Um, anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but Paul is writing to a church in Philippi, so in Greece, uh, in probably, we're thinking, the mid-50s, you know, first century A.D., and verses 6 through 11 include a poem uh, that was composed by somebody else, maybe even as early uh, as the 40s. So this is the way that the earliest folks in the church understood Jesus. And Paul writes to them, I, actually, our, our text is just 5 through 11, but I want to set it up and then read it with you. Uh, so we'll just read Philippians 2. Here's Paul. Hear his heart to the people. He asks a question. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? You know, that's a good question. You know, why belong to Christ? Does it matter? Is there any encouragement? Like, does it help life in any kind of way? Is there any comfort from his love? Or is there any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Okay. Well, Paul is, is asking a question while also giving a challenge. Is this where you're at? Is this what's happening with you guys in your community? Then, he says, verse 2, Make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. We don't have to extend that beyond what he says. It's be good together, you know? Be one. Live as a people. Don't be selfish, verse 3. Don't try to impress other people. Be humble, thinking of yourselves as better, thinking of others it's better than yourselves. Esteem other people higher than yourself. Verse 4, don't look out for your own interests, but take an interest in others. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Aha. 
Paul is giving a gift to the people in Philippi in this church. Grace to them, a gift to them. He wants them to have the life of Christ. He said, here's what that looks like. Verse 5, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. And then he includes a poem. Some will call it a hymn. Uh, and as I said, it appears to be written by somebody else and to have been circulating in early Christianity, uh, maybe even as early as the 40s. So here's how we have, as long as we can sort of imagine being a church, <laughs> understood who Jesus Christ is and was. Verse 6. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave or servant and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the highest place of honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow. This is your king. Okay. This is the king Isaiah was longing for. The sovereign Lord over all things. The powerful Savior who will rescue. This is what sovereignty over all creation looks like. And I think we miss it a lot. Because we're like, God is powerful, and then just auto-insert our vision of what power looks like, which means we auto-insert what salvation looks like. And we miss Jesus saying, this is what salvation looks like. It's you being saved from your deathly way of life and being brought into my lively way of life. And he tells us what to do. He shows us what it will look like and says, look, if you're having a really hard time, just look, watch me. Look at what I'm doing. This is what sovereignty over all creation. And notice Jesus, he has total full control over himself. Today's Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of the Passion Week. The, and don't think passion just in the terms of like, he was super passionate. Think of it in the word in terms of the word passive. The Passive Week. The one week in all of cosmic history where God himself allows himself to be acted upon passively. This is not what a sovereign ultimate being deity does. But it is. He has total full control over himself, Jesus, demonstrating the inability for any external force to harm or destroy him because he gives it up. By knowing that the Spirit gives life, Jesus trusts that. So his life isn't taken from him or stolen. Oh no, you took my life. Uh, give it back. <laughs> no, he gives it freely as a gift. I think Satan in that moment and I know we're getting ahead of the story a bit, but just bear with me. Satan in that moment where, where, the, where the life is given as a gift, I think rejoices much like the white witch. I'm in control. I win. Well, Jesus lives like the deeper magic empowering Aslan, you know. Oh, death, where is your sting? I know something you don't know, evil Satan. That powerful savior that we beg to rescue us is this God. Jesus, 
who humbled himself, and he took care of other people with everything that he had. He did not turn away from God's will, and therefore, he didn't die forever. He died, but rose. That's so crucial. That's crucial to the whole Christian faith. So uh, this is important because as we God rescue us, save us, we're crying out to God who is also responding back to us and saying, yes, I will, and here's what that means, and here's who it is. I've been teaching you this stuff for 2,000 plus years. Pay attention. Listen. Jesus, though called a criminal and killed as one, is elevated to the highest honor. This is a total reframing of what it means to be in power, to be in control, and to have honor. Verse 7 is a mysterious and grounding passage. It's this idea of kenosis, pouring out. He limited himself. And this, I think, gives us a huge insight. Nothing can humble us like recognizing our own limitation. And when we don't, I think we try to sit on God's throne. You know, imagine God on his throne and you kind of just nudging in on the side, being like, come on, man, scoot over here. Let me get in there. Give me some space because you're some stuff you're missing, God. You've been missing it for a while. Let me just help you understand. You know, it, Job was like that, Old Testament. Read the book of Job all the way to the end. You'll see that he had to learn something about thinking that he knew as much as God. Well, here's why it matters. Is my son Wesley, when he's disobeying, all right? Sometimes I'm very, very inclined to think that his disobedience is just raw, unrestrained rebellion. It's that evil seed born into him by Adam, <laughs> you know? He's a rebel. He's not respecting me as his father and authority, all right? And then in that thought, I will make a decision on how to act. What if that is a limited thought, though? What if Wesley is actually, while he's banging his, you know, rattle on the whatever, or he's eight years old, he doesn't use rattles much anymore, but hammer, he's got a hammer. You know what kids do to try to get your attention, and you've asked them to not, but he keeps doing it? And I'm, and I'm mad. Well, is he reacting with rebellion, or is he reacting in fear? Maybe he's afraid because I screamed the last time I was upset. And he can sense that I'm getting upset because of that fight that Allie and I had. And I don't really want to think about that at all. Certainly that's not part of this. And they don't feel safe in the car with me because they can hear that tone in my voice. And it's that tone that only comes when dad's frustrated or about to get angry. And so he starts singing, or he and his sister start singing, and then they want to play the alphabet game. Hey, let's do the alphabet game. And I say, please, just be quiet. And it's quiet for two seconds, and then they start kicking the seat. And it is raw rebellion. They will not listen. And then I try to control. I use what power I have, and I cling to it, and I wield it to bring my will to bear on the situation. Yeah? <laughs> Well, were they just being raw rebellion people? Or were they trying to actually bond with me in safe and good love? What if in my limited viewpoint, I'm actually doing the wrong thing when I discipline Wesley for what looks like rebellion when really it's not rebellion at all? He's just a young child who doesn't know how to connect with me in a loving way when he doesn't know if I'm upset or not. 
oh, my mind is so limited at that level. And here's what you do. The world would say, see, Ben, you're so bad, you're so bad. But as Isaiah recognized, you can call me guilty and call me bad all you want. I'm with God, and he forgives me. So we trust God at that level. And then we ask not only for forgiveness, but we ask for help. What do I do? And I think God would say, uh, treat your son, even as he is being disrespectful or disobedient, treat him always as your beloved and discipline him with the strength of a father that is also the love, grace, patience, mercy, and forgiveness of a father. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. And I take a breath. And all of a sudden, guess what's happening? I'm building a relationship that's actually alive, and it's not rooted in death and fear. Sorry for the sidetrack there, but that's an example, I think, of, of what happens when we accept our limitation and recognize we desperately need some help. Uh, we need God, all right? My limitations have so much potential to trick me into thinking something is true that's not true at all. And... Jesus, throughout his whole life, is very mysterious on this front. At least to me, he is. He does these sign acts, right? We've talked about him in the last couple of weeks, you know, walking on water and, you know, uh, just raising Lazarus from the dead last week. He, clearly, there's some power, you know, that Bob Smith down the street doesn't have, and neither do I, and you probably don't either. It's It's a big, powerful act. Well... He's careful to say, these are given to me from God, okay? There's an acknowledgement of a personal limitation. Now, you've got to bear with me here, because we're going to go a little Trinitarian for a second. He also will be asked questions that you would ask, like a person, you know, who is God, <laughs> should know the answer to these questions. Like, hey, how's the future going to play out? And Jesus will say, I don't actually know. Only the Father knows that, and we're reading it, and we're like, I thought you were God. What is going on? Are you God or are you not God? They tell me you're God. Well, I can't solve all of your Trinitarian questions, but here's an important distinction that we have to pay attention to. Jesus is the Son of God in a, in a very true and important sense. Uh, Father, Son, and Spirit exist as one God in three persons, three distinct persons completely connected as one God. So we, we can predicate upon one anything we would say about the other. Um, we won't go too deep into this. But what we want to pay attention to is that Jesus, the one born, Jesus of Nazareth, you know, is the incarnation of the Son of God. So Father, Son, and Spirit exist eternally. No beginning, no end, always exist. And the Son, so is therefore has no beginning or end, but Jesus of Nazareth does have a beginning. And that's, you know, uh, Bethlehem, Mary, virgin birth, Christmas, all of that. So he has a birthday. The Son of God does not. All right? You're like, I thought they were the same. They are. They are the same. I know it's not super, I don't really understand it perfectly myself, but the point is this. God chooses to limit himself when he is born as a human being. That's the big thing. God has always existed eternally, Father, Son, and Spirit, but he enters into humanity in the flesh when he is born as Jesus of Nazareth. 
And when he does that, he's saving us. And, and as Dallas Willard wisely recognized years ago that we have far too many vampire Christians who just go to Jesus for a little blood, <laughs> we don't want to be vampire Christians. We want to recognize his life, death, and resurrection are saving us. And that includes his entire life. So during his life, he'll say, come to me, follow me, live as I live, understand God the Father, obey me, do as I do, as I'm doing the right thing. Even in, Jesus is saying, my limited state, I remember I've kenosis, I've poured myself out, I've not counted equality with God as something to be grasped, I've limited. Even in my limited state, which you also are limited, I can pray with him, depend on him, trust in him completely, even in the chaos and the pain as a human being, and that's what I am, frail, weeping. Jesus saying these words, he gets frail, he's weeping, he's hungry, cold. Ultimately, he's beaten and stabbed to death as a criminal. But I can stay true to the Father who gives life and trust him when he says that my win is life with him, not controlling the things of this world to my perceived advantage. That's the key. My perceived advantage is rooted in a very limited one, and Jesus becomes limited so that he too can experience what it's like. All right? My son, back to that analogy or example, might be rebelling in the car, and he might be reaching out to bond with me in love. I can suffer that tension he creates, even though my head is somewhere else. I can stop and give him attention, and it's costly attention, but that is the way of God. And in doing so, something is being saved, rescued. My spouse, who hurt me so deeply, uh, my best friend, who hurt me or betrayed me, beyond words, there's distrust, there's anger, there's tension. Why? Because no matter how many times I try to show them, they don't change. It's infuriating. I need to up my game. They're rebelling. They're not doing what's right. Yeah, maybe that's true about your spouse, your friend, your loved one. And maybe we're limited, and maybe they are. Maybe there's way more to the story. Maybe there's so much more uh, than, than the small part of the universe we can actually perceive is telling us. So much that if we were wise, we would simply say with the prophet and with the psalmist, rescue me, rescue me. Not, God, I know what needs to happen and I need your power to come and get it done. Instead, it's, God, help me. Your will be done. Please help me to do it. <laughs> you have an unlimited perception. And in my low and broken and humble state, I'm confused, I'm hurting, I'm trying to find the life of goodness and love in this world. I know in the end that you are the best. You're beyond the suffering. You pull me through it and you raise me up. I don't need you to get my will done. I need you to help me understand and to desire to want to do your will. I wish there was another way, but your will is the only way that brings life. So your will be done. <laughs> and I think we can see it and maybe feel it. It has the ring of truth to it, you know? It's like Jesus' choice to limit himself allowed him to learn our life of humanity through our own eyes and bodies. 
just imagine going from the way that it feels. Imagine his move in that <laughs> that move. Imagine going from the way it feels to know and understand everything, everything, to only what you can understand from a first century Jewish life for approximately 30 years. <laughs> you know? <laughs> It's like, it's what could you possibly do other than just depend on the Father fully? It's like somebody blindfolding you and setting you into the middle of nowhere. And then, I, I, don't, I don't have a good analogy off the cuff here, but just imagine that move. I, I don't even know if he was able to compare it, but all omniscience, you know, all-knowing, all-seeing to, here's what you know from 30 years on earth, as a as a Jewish male uh, <laughs> living around Jerusalem, you know, pretty much your entire life, not a very broad travel span, you know? And I think Jesus in his wisdom is able to just say, whoa, the, the best possible thing I have in this scenario is to know what God's will is and just try my best to do it. It's very interesting, isn't it? What could he possibly do other than depend on the Father? I'm sure that he was baffled by how much we think we have it all together. And I think he's consistently saying, you guys are a lot more limited than you think. And that is not a bad thing. It's so crucial. I think he could say, look at me. Almighty, perfect, sovereign, loving, wonderful God stayed all of those things, almighty, perfect, loving, all that stuff, in his limited form. And in that sense, he has entirely redefined limitation, hasn't he? I think he has. It's beautiful. Limitation is not the problem. It's limitation when we try to believe we're not limited. <laughs> That's that's the problem. We usurp God's role. And then we take on his responsibility and it crushes us. Well, come with me now to the final story. This is the final hour approaching. Controversies around Jesus, the Jewish elite, the Roman military and government. I mean, it is all a mess. And Jesus is being charged with crime by some. He is currently wanted. All right. We're coming up to this moment at Gethsemane. We're in Matthew 26, and I'm going to read verses 14 through 50. And I think all of the different things we've been talking about so far culminate in Jesus, in this story, and in this moment. I believe one of the most infamous, wonderful, beautiful, profound moments in the whole Bible, <laughs> certainly in the New Testament. Here we go. Matthew 26, 14 through 50. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve disciples, went to the leading priests and asked, How much will you pay me to betray Jesus to you? And they give him thirty pieces of silver. From that time on, Judas began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. Just pause for a quick second. We think Judas, of, as, uh, Judas was likely uh, one of the Essenes, 
um, a, a group of Jews of kind of an, a radical, well, how do I put this? Judas was almost definitely uh, very interested in the Savior and in the Messiah coming and had the vision that that would mean a great military leader who would destroy everybody. And it appears that somewhere along the way, Judas picks up on that is not going to happen. And I think Judas was extremely disappointed. Um, that's, I, that's my take on where we're at. And that's not just an, a random opinion. But I think Judas betrays because he's grieved because Jesus has not turned out to come and say, we're going to slaughter all these bad guys. He starts forgiving them and treating them with respect. And <laughs> it's just... That's not what a lot of people did not want to see that kind of thing. So anyway, that's the background. Judas is here. He's thinking maybe there's a way to score some cash off of this deal. How much will you guys pay? They say, we'll, we'll pay 30 pieces. Verse 17. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, Passover, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to prepare the Passover meal for you? As you go into the city, he told them, you will see a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my time has come and I will eat the Passover meal with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus told them and prepared the Passover meal there. When it was evening, Jesus sat down at the table with the twelve. While they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Greatly distressed, each one asked in turn, Am I the one, Lord? He replied, One of you who has just eaten from this bowl will betray me, for the Son of Man must die, as the Scriptures declared long ago. But how terrible it would be for the one who betrays him. It would be far better for that man if he had never been born. Well, Judas, the one who would betray him, also asked, Rabbi, am I the one? And Jesus told him, You have said it. You have said it. Verse 26. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and he gave it to the disciples, saying, Take this and eat, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it and gave it to each of them and said, Each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Mark my words, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it in new with you and my Father's kingdom. Then they sang a hymn and they went out to the Mount of Olives. Oh, this is a beautiful scene. We'll pause there for a second and just soak that in as Jesus is coming now to what he knows will be his death. And it, the disciples have expressed trepidation about even coming into Jerusalem. You know that they're hunting for you there, don't you? <laughs> they said, and he's like, we're going. And now he sits, and this is a very intimate moment. I think that moment where Jesus says, you have said it. I just see verse 25, Judas is like, what, am I the one? It's like Jesus can see right into his heart. And he's like, you've already said what you need to say. It's so interesting to feel the pain Jesus must have felt because this is not 
the end of Judas' story. He's going to show up again, and Jesus is going to call him something. And it's really important. Let's continue. They're going out to the Mount of Olives now. This is just down the valley and uh, over. So imagine if you would, uh, let's see, for all of my Portlanders, uh, you know, from where he is, you would imagine yourself being on Mount Tabor and walking down to about, uh, let's see, the Baghdad Theater on Hawthorne. All right. <laughs> That's about it. It, it, it probably not even that far of a walk, quite frankly. Um, so it's a short walk. Let's go down uh, to the Mount of Olives. They're going to go to this garden called Gethsemane. On the way, uh, Jesus told them, Tonight all of you will desert me. <laughs> that's not funny. That's uh, just funny how it reads, you know. On the way, Jesus said to them, Tonight all of you will desert me. <laughs> oh, man. Now let's get into the actual tone. Jesus told them, tonight all of you will desert me. The scriptures say it. God will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. Peter declared, even if everyone else deserts you, I will never desert you. Jesus replied, I'm going to tell you the truth, Peter, this very night, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times that you even know me. No, Peter insisted. Even if I have to die with you, I would never deny you. And all the other disciples vowed the same. No, we would never. You can hear him. No, no, no. That's crazy. Verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane. He said, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, uh, and he came, he became anguish and distressed. He told them, My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Pause for a second. Uh, this language, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death anguished and distressed. This is the same language what he felt when he saw Lazarus, uh, who had been destroyed, if you will, by death. It's the same language that he has uh, felt in the presence of evil spirit. He, he has this sort of infuriating and grievous response to the chaos and death and brokenness. So he's in this place right now, but there's not any threat or death immediately. It's, I think, what he's looking forward toward, what's going to happen. He's crushed with grief. Stay here. Keep watch with me. Verse 39, he went on a little farther and he bowed with his face to the ground, praying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then he returned to the disciples, and he found them asleep. And he said to Peter, Couldn't you watch with me even an hour? Keep watch and pray, so that you will not give in to temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. We might say the body is limited. Stay in the spirit. Then Jesus left them a second time and prayed, My father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. Whoa. 
This moment, verse 42, is, I think, the greatest reversal in the history of humanity. It is the bookend of the biblical narrative, the Eden moment and the Gethsemane moment, two gardens, two trees. In Eden, faced with my will or God's, we chose my will. I want to know, even though God said not yet. And in Gethsemane, we're faced with the same choice, but now the new Adam says, your will, not mine. It's not about power. It's not about rights. It's not about even justice as we would perceive it in this moment because it was an unjust killing, was it not? Jesus wasn't demanding justice. He wasn't demanding anything. He was submitting himself to the will of God, and he says, this is what it looks like to be saved. This is what life is. You say, no, it's not. It's going to take my life. It's going to destroy my life. He says, trust me, watch me, follow me into the grave, but you'll follow me right back up out of it. Verse 43. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open. So he went to pray a third time, saying the same things again. Then he came to the disciples and he said, Go ahead and sleep. Have your rest. But look, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up. Get up. Let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. And even as Jesus said this, Judas, one of the twelve disciples, arrived with a crowd of men armed with swords and clubs. They had been sent by the leading priests and elders of the people. The traitor, Judas, had given them a prearranged signal. You will know which one to arrest when I greet him with a kiss. So Judas came straight to Jesus. Greetings, Rabbi, he exclaimed, and gave him a kiss. Jesus said, my friend, yes, that's what Jesus said. <laughs> Verse 50, Jesus said, my friend, go ahead and do what you have come for. And then the others grabbed Jesus and arrested him. Huh. Judas, and Jesus said to him, my friend. And thus begins the Passion Week as we lead up now through this Holy Week to Easter next Sunday. As I said earlier, this is the week of willful suffering on behalf of God. His was pure because He chose it, God's suffering. He chose to allow Himself to be acted upon, chose to limit Himself. And I think it was all in an effort to make you and me to make us, to create us, to make us the way we are, able to live as individuals who are distinctly different from one another and beautiful in our own very unique and, and artistic, infinitely beautiful way, while also completely bound to one another in unity, just as Father, Son, and Spirit are bound in unity. We are like Him. We have His Spirit. We can love and care for and pray for our enemies without an illusory fear of what valuable thing they might take. We're all, we're all pleading with Jesus, aren't we? Like, no, not this. They're going to take something valuable from you. But Jesus, I think, is trusting and saying nothing of value can be taken from God's own, especially not life. 
And so it is to his enemy, his mortal betrayer, that God himself can say, my friend Judas. The most infamous betrayer of the past 2,000 years on the planet, God calls friend. His love seems to make it impossible for him to leave the relationship. That is God's love for you and for me. And Judas bows out of the relationship rather than, uh, rather than protecting himself, knowing that it is better to remain in God's will than, than to do what I need to to survive. Jesus says, do your worst. Okay, so Judas bows out of that kind of relationship and becomes a dangerous threat to Jesus. But Jesus, rather than protected himself, knowing that it is better to remain in God's will than it is to do what he needs to to survive, he looks at Judas and doesn't say, you're going to get yours, punk. I'm coming for you. This won't stand. This is un-. He doesn't say any of that. He says, do what you're going to do. And then Jesus dies as a result. God dies in that sense. In the most profound and mysteriously true sense, he lets go of his rights, his preferences, his honor, and we might even say his glory to allow us to harm him, to allow passive activity upon him. And we have to stop right there. This is God showing us what real life is about. And whatever we say it is, we know for sure that it is not about getting our way so much as it is it is about patiently loving the other lives around us. It seems so unnecessary uh, in a world where threats to food and water sources feel more important than threats to marriages or friendships and other forms of co-laboring in life together. We're so bent on finding the right resources more than we are on having the right kind of relationship to others and to God. But even to the bitter end, Jesus is welcoming Judas as a friend. Jesus says, come to me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Stop hating your enemies and trying to even, even things out with them. Why? Because hating makes you die. Stop holding that anger toward your loved one. Why? Because the anger harms your system and your mind and your whole emotional makeup. And you're probably angry for the wrong reason anyway because you have a very limited perspective. It makes you less aware of how you are showing up in the lives of others. And that leads to relational tension and then relational breakage. And it seems like we're not made for relational destruction. <laughs> so that's the hard part of this world that crafts our hearts and minds to say, how do I have the resources I need to live? God, okay, maybe he's a good relationship. My neighbors, people, spouse, friends, family, yeah, I'll do what I can. But he's saying, no, back up. That other stuff is secondary. The others grab and arrest Jesus. And God is showing us something here. Surely Judas's heart and soul is twisted and broken up inside. I bet all the disciples are. Read the rest of the story this week. As Jesus said, all of his friends will abandon him. One Peter will publicly say he never even knew him. And what do you suppose Jesus was thinking as the Romans are gripping his arms pulling him into shackles, I bet his heart was broken. I bet his fear and anxiety and anger and sorrow were mixed up into one insane physical feeling. But I also know 
that in this time, he was not just, you know, kicking it to catch up on sleep here at the, mo at the moment in Gethsemane. The others seem to just be so exhausted they need to just sleep. But Jesus knows something about his spirit that you and I are only learning. We know how to drink, get water, sleep, food, stay sheltered. We're good at that. But how to nourish and grow and strengthen our spirit and its function in our day-to-day, -day, that's something that we haven't been talking about for a very long time. But I think Jesus wants to talk about that. Because in the spirit, he's able to let down his guard. I think when we're not in the spirit, our guard has to stay way up. Jesus is in the spirit, though. Uh, Isaiah in the beginning, morning by morning, this, this way of abiding in God, being in his life, he's able to allow the other person around him to flail, to hurt, even to hate him, while he consistently tries to stay friend and fellow. And I think this is our calling. Uh, my friends in, in our church, this is our calling, to be humble, to let down our right to be respected and understood, to be appreciated so that we can instead... Right, pursue something worth more than our reputation or our comfort. Those things seem to be so valuable, but they're actually not in the end. What is valuable is real love, real life, the heartbeat of God himself. It goes into a grave, dying in love for you and me, and it raises up out of that grave, and that's our hope. Promising that in humility, patience, faith, hope, love, the way of Christ is glory and the endless life. This is the way of the cross. This is the way of the cross to be formed into the way of the cross or the way of Christ. It's just profound to me. All of what I believe I need to have to be saved and to feel okay Jesus keeps reining my heart and mind and attention back in and says, Ben, all of that stuff, we can keep talking about that, but you have to focus. Try your best. Stay with me. I'll forgive you. I'll pick you up when you fall. I'll redirect you when you're distracted, but don't give up on me. Stay with me. Follow my will. You'll see that it works. You'll see that it'll be painful at first, but then so, so, so good. Trust me, says God to us today. The way of the cross, living with Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, would you please help each one of us know and understand your will? Would you teach us through this moment we find ourselves in, in this sort of universal, worldwide sense, and would you teach us to expect your way of life to rescue us? It's unexpected, your rescue. We, we expected something more magical and immediate. You taught us that it's a, it's a way of learning, following, trusting, believing. And thank you for teaching us that. And I think we're starting to grasp it in various ways, all of us in different parts of our journey and all of that. But we want to be with you. Uh, please help us. Uh, please have mercy on us. And thank you on behalf of all of us. Thank you.
for being so incredibly kind and good. Amen.